Go ahead and get your Bibles. If you have them, you can follow along. We're going to sort of stay close there to the text for a little bit. So um, you'll want to you'll follow along. I want you to see what I'm seeing. So we'll be in um, John 8. So you can flip there. John chapter 8. We're going to look at the one verse at the end of John 7. Probably your Bible has it bracketed, or at least there's a note there. So that just means that some of the earliest manuscripts, this passage isn't there. But we have manuscripts that are later that have them as well. But we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. So John chapter 7, verse 53, and we'll read to verse, or chapter 8, verse 11. These are the words of God. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the, into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, uh, in the, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Our Father and just God, we give thanks tonight for the gift of your law word. We are thankful that you are just and your law is just. And we ask and pray that we would learn to use it lawfully, beginning with ourselves and those around us. Help us to exhibit wisdom in each area of our lives so that you will be glorified and your mission carried out on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. So this is the second time our attention has been brought to a woman of ill repute. The first encounter was the woman at, of Samaria at Jacob's well back in John 4, and now we have another woman brought before us caught in adultery there at the temple in Jerusalem. And while this story is largely misunderstood, I am convinced that if we take the time to actually look at what it's being said, um, what is actually said and not what we wish was said, <laughs> we can understand it and then dispel some of the faulty theories that swirl around it. With regard to some of those faulty theories about this passage, I'll mention just a couple here on the front end and then we'll dive right in. First, it is often misunderstood by many, and, and, and people, exegetical commentaries of various stripes will say these sorts of things, but it's often understood by many people that Jesus here repudiates the law of Moses. Uh, he has a negative view of the law of Moses. Um, because of, of certain theological errors with certain, um, whether it's radical two kingdoms or, or certain theological errors like that, 
there's this disparaging gap that's placed between Jesus and Moses as if Jesus decided, you know, that Moses was, was a bit too rough around the edges, uh, and talking about stoning people and all this. And, 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 you know, because Jesus truly loves people and he's nice, he's going to shave off the hard parts of the law of Moses to make it a little bit more presentable. That is, a, I would argue, probably the prevailing view in evangelicalism. So that's one example among, among many, but it's a major example. Far too many Christians believe that Jesus and Moses were basically working from different scripts, and, and thus Jesus, you know, he had to make the hard decision, bless his heart, he had to make the hard decision to move away and back away from difficult things and primitive things like stoning people for adultery. <laughs> That's what people think. Another faulty theory is thinking that Jesus demonstrates why theonomy, God's law, as a hermeneutic and as a system of biblical interpretation, um, that's flawed and useless. People would look at this text and it's a gotcha text, that, that God's law should not be applied today, and this is proof as to why that's the case. So based on the presupposition that I just mentioned, the first one, it is concluded that essentially Jesus has no intention of applying the law of God um, during the New Testament era, and thus it's certainly not for today either. Because Moses and Jesus are essentially pitted against one another, that's the conclusion you would draw, right? It's only natural to conclude that God's law, as given to us in the Old Testament, is no longer binding or valid at all. There's nothing we should do with it. It's just there in the Old Testament for us to think about. Um, and then this whole theonomy thing is then a charade. That's what people say. The problem, of course, is none of those things are true. <laughs> Jesus is not at odds with Moses, but I would argue he complements Moses entirely. In fact, Jesus is the greater Moses, and by being greater, that doesn't mean Moses is somehow lesser in the sense that, you know, God thought one thing then, but he thinks a different thing now. That's not what we mean. Jesus is the greater Moses, and he wants, um, and he, Jesus himself, was quite clear that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? Matthew 7, or excuse me, Matthew 5. He didn't come to abolish, but to, to fulfill, to bring it to its appointed consummation, to, to um, pleruo is the Greek word, to bring it to its fullness. So also, as we'll see shortly, Jesus does uphold the law of God by dealing justly in the situation, Okay, so note that. His, his call for those who have no sin to throw the first stone isn't meant to, to basically be this diminishing requirement to, to judge righteously. Rather, it's a call to righteous judgment based on God's law. So let's just dig in. We'll work ourselves through the passage. I want you to see what I'm seeing so that we can hopefully, um, hopefully maybe I can convince you if you're skeptical. Maybe you're not. I don't know. So we learn in verse 1 that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, presumably to pray, he did that often, to pray while everyone else went into their own homes. That's what uh, chapter 7, verse 53 tells us. Everyone went to their homes, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, so he's alone, he's probably praying. 
early the next morning, he goes to the temple, he went to the temple, and as was normal at this point, people were coming to him, and Jesus, in verse 2, he uses it as an opportunity to teach them. To, he, he's always good with a crowd because he can teach them something and blow their minds with some of the things that they assume. While at the temple, we learn in verse 3 that the scribes and Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery and they put her at the center of the court. That is, they put her before Jesus, a teacher, a rabbi, for adjudication purposes. So he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, certainly he can solve the problem. What do we do with this woman? She was caught in the act of adultery. Now, as a side note, when a crime happened, because when we talk about um, abolishing things like the police state, and what we have now are basically fancy pirates roaming around in fancy cars, you know, stealing from people. That's what the police has become. Back then, we have a situation when somebody was caught, the defendant, the person who committed the crime, was um, apprehended by temple police, essentially. Remember who came to get Jesus in the garden? That, that's how that process works. The police are called when they are needed. They're not to go out and look for, they're not, not a pre-crime unit. Okay, this is a minority report. But they bring the defendant, and they bring the defendant before the court, before the Sanhedrin, before the judges. Um, even in the Old Testament, they would be, as Matt read in Deuteronomy 17, they would be brought before the Levites if there was a question or not, whether or not, you know, what do we do in this situation? Because X, Y, Z. So they were brought before the leaders, and now the concept of due process then would begin. So just as a sidebar, keep that in, con in, in context. They explain to Jesus, they bring the woman, put her in the center, they explain to Jesus, calling him teacher, that she has been caught in adultery, quote, in the very act, verse 4. So note that. She was caught in the act. Now this is a serious crime, and we are to assume nothing more than what the text tells us. Um, later we're going to sort of expound on that, but for this, for this point, she was caught. Something happened her with another man, and we don't know the details. We can speculate, and we will do a little bit of speculation later, but the point being, she's caught in the act. So this is a crime. Um, unlike today, adultery is sort of celebrated. We even have websites for it where you can um, do it anonymously, those types of things. So they, they make the issue, the religious leaders make the issue as straightforward as possible, saying in verse 5, Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And John tells us in verse 6, he, gets us, he, he lets us know a secret, that this is a trap that is set for Jesus. They wanted to test him to see if they could essentially build a case against him. And the next verse is interesting, and we'll come back to it later. Jesus stooped down, verse 6, and, he, and with his finger he wrote in the ground. Now, rather than accommodating their obvious unlawful use of the law, Jesus doodles in the dirt. Not the most appropriate time for that. This is a serious crime. It's a serious matter. And Jesus sort of backs off, bends down, and starts writing in the dirt. 
So, in other words, here, here's, um, <laughs> we are not obligated to entertain unlawful uses of the law. That's what we should think of that. Now, the leaders, though, they're persistent. The leaders are persistent. They want an answer for him. Surely this, this rabbi, this judge, isn't going to throw a clear case like this out of the courtroom. Why would he do such a thing? That's, that's, a, that's a mistrial. That's, a, that's a, a total terrible thing for any guy who calls himself the rabbi to, to be. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. <laughs> he does throw the, course, cor, um, throw the case out of the courtroom. He stands back up and he says in verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. This is key, largely misunderstood, but it is key, and we'll come back to it. So not entertaining the obvious mishandling of justice, he stoops back down, and instead, what does he do? He doodles in the dirt some more. Verse 8. So after hearing the retort from Jesus, the elders left first, which was customary. You don't leave a room till the elders leave first. The elders left first, and then everybody left this area, the temple complex, one by one. They followed suit, and in verse 9 we see that only Jesus was left with the woman, just like in John 4. So it's just the two of them. Now this is an absolutely amazing encounter. Jesus stands back up, almost, <laughs> almost asking sarcastically. He says, woman, where are they? Where did they go? I'm sorry, I was busy drawing in the dirt. Where did they go? <laughs> is no one here to condemn you? In other words, I've been drawing here. What happened here? I thought, I thought we had a court procedure here. Where, what happened? Where's everyone going? And she calls, notice at the, in the verse here, that she calls Jesus Lord in verse 11. She calls Jesus Lord and told him that no one is condemning her. No one. But what does Jesus think? Well, he tells her, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. So, what, what do we do with a passage like this? How, how should we apply it personally? How should we think about it? Well, let's, let's start here. Let's make sure that we're um, grasping the gravity of what just took place by keeping in mind the context of John. The wrestling match between Jesus and the leaders is essentially heating up. The boiling point has been reached. Why is that? Why is it that the religious leaders want him dead? They want him gone? Well, it's pretty simple because Jesus has come face to face with the main problem. And what's the main problem? Well, their religion, their false religion of meticulous external piety with hearts long gone, that's one problem. Their phony relationship to Yahweh, Jesus is going to soon tell them that their father is the devil. That's not nice. And then he's going to confront basically their abandonment of their vocation as, and their calling to be a light to the world. That's what um, Isaiah tells us in a couple different passages. So Jesus confronts their issue. They have a meticulous external piety with no heart. They, they have abandoned their, their um, calling to be a light to the world. They, they, they have so messed up the whole thing. And their relationship to God is non-existent. Their father is actually the devil, not Abraham. 
So instead of being this bastion of light and wisdom that God promised, if only they would obey God's law and live righteously, that's what Deuteronomy 4 tells us, and not pietistically, they had become a dark hodgepodge of rebellion ripe only for judgment. And here is a young prophet from Nazareth pointing out the blatant hypocrisy of the leaders of Israel. Pointing it out. Not only like Jesus doesn't walk up to him and and say, hey, you, you have a gunshot wound in your arm. He sticks his finger in it. He's pointing out the issue. Quite literally, he's pressing on it. See, having your idols exposed is not to be likened to a walk in the park. It's not a joyful thing to have your idols brought to light. Because of Jesus' prophetic onslaught, he quickly moved to the top of their hit list. They wanted him dead. But because the leaders idolize respectability, they can't just stealthily try to kill him. They're not going to hire an assassin. That wouldn't be respectable, and they, they idolize that. They need to build a case. They need to build a case against Jesus that they can bring against him to Rome. In order to build the case, they need more dirt on the prophet. In order to get more dirt on the prophet, they need to trap him, and that's what they do. They come up with a strategy. They try to do this several times to Jesus. The woman, woman caught in adultery would be a perfect plan for them. See, for the leaders, one of two things could happen. Keep this in mind when we interpret this passage. One, they could get Jesus to repudiate the law of Moses, and thus they could expose his false agenda, and then they could quiet down the crowds, and thus they could dismiss him entirely. This, this is known as discrediting someone. All right, um, It happens all the time. If your argument fails, just discredit them. Somehow make fun of them. Ad hominems were great. Call them a ninny poo poo or something. That's, that's what we do. We, when, when the argument fails, we resort to name calling. We discredit people. So that's one thing. If they can get him to repudiate the law of Moses, then he'll go away. Two, the other option is they can get him to proceed against this woman unjustly and then they can put him up against Rome, and then Jesus would be seen as a violent revolutionary, and then Rome will take him out. So for them, it's a win-win situation. He's either going to side with, with Moses and be against Rome, or he's going to side with Rome and be against Moses. And then we, we got him. This is the gotcha moment for them. Now at this point, Rome took most serious matters of jurisprudence from Israel. Okay, Israel did not have the capability to put someone to death. They, didn't, they couldn't carry out the death penalty at this point, which they acknowledged later before Pilate when they tried to get Jesus put to death. Suddenly they have a moment of respectability. Oh, we can't put him to death. You have to. You know, let's transfer the culpability to, to Pilate. So they acknowledged that later. But of course now they don't care. They're just trapping him. Later they learn from it. So they want Jesus to take matters into his own hands and then they can trick him into implicating himself. It'll be a great plan. So either he's implicated and Rome will dispose of him or he's discredited and the Jewish crowds will be quiet and they'll stop bothering it with him. So that's the trap. That's what they're going to do to him. Now because of their blind rage, the plan basically comes to fruition here. They find a woman caught in adultery Keep in mind, this is probably during the Feast of Booths, which is still where the next section picks up. 
So temp the Jerusalem would have been populated heavily now, not as big as Passover, because that was the great feast, but, but still quite populated. So they find a, a woman caught, caught in adultery. The trap is set. Now what happens, though? <laughs> Instead of Jesus being discredited, the leaders are not going to be discredited. The woman was taken adultery, in adultery, but now the, the religious leaders are going to be taken in hypocrisy. But how? How does Jesus get out of this trap? Well, to start, in terms of adultery, it takes two to tango. <laughs> it takes two to tango. Where was the man? Where was the man in this situation? If she was caught in adultery... And that's true, and, and as far as we know, that was true. Where is the man? Now, I have a theory, and it is speculation, but I'm, I'm thinking that the leaders probably kept the man who was caught, they probably kept him um, to protect him so that they could then, you know, discredit the woman. So we'll call this selective outrage. <laughs> so that, that's, that's a fairly normal ego trip for power religionists. So I'm, I'm convinced that that's really at the heart of why Jesus treated their trivial case with such triviality. Where's the man? It's like such an obvious case of injustice. They, they catch her. Probably the man is, maybe he's with them. We don't know. Maybe he's standing there in the crowd, maybe kept behind some of the, the leaders. We don't know. But where is the man? Well, he's probably being protected so essentially, Jesus, um, <laughs> Jesus applies what Proverbs says here. He says, uh, he um, answers the fool according to their folly. He answers the fool according to their folly. This is not a court case. They want it to be. It's basically a staged publicity stunt that reveals the stupidity of their plan. Here's a woman. It takes two to tango. Where's the other man? And Jesus would have seen this probably is the reason why he stooped down to doodle in the dirt. At any rate, there is no man here, which means there's no court case. Okay, this is how justice works in God's law. We are given a hint at their mistake, I think, from the very beginning. They said that the law of Moses commands them to stone such a woman, which isn't entirely true. Okay, sidebar. If she wasn't married... There were provisions in the law of God connected to her being the victim and then receiving a dowry payment, thus making her protected for future economic, um, economic endeavors. By the way, I think the dowry system is fantastic and we need to get back to it. It's matters of justice. So this woman, if she wasn't married, she would have been owed by the man a, a dowry payment which was an equivalent to about three years of, a, of income. It's not a small price. So that's how, that's how justice in God's law would have worked. And, and part of it's tied to the fact, you can read in Leviticus about this, but part of it's tied to the fact that for her, if she wasn't married, she was probably pretty young. And so for her, justice is her future is not to be robbed by a man. It's to be protected because she's powerless in a lot of the situations, especially in terms of rape, if she cried out, um, he would have been put to death. But the dowry payment would have been ensured, you know, that she had some level of respect still, and she could then get a future husband and have a family, and she would have a future because God law, God's law cares about the future. So if she had gotten married again, she'd actually have a double dowry, which would make her, her um, situation more attractive for a future husband. 
Now, if the woman was married, because we don't know from the text, if she was married, both of them were to be put to death. They were to be stoned to death according to Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22. But but both parties, we need to understand, are guilty and both parties are to suffer the consequences, not one. If she was married, he was married, and they committed adultery, they were caught in the act, the witnesses are to be there, and they were to be put to death. Now this sounds so foreign in our culture, but God cares about the family. The family is a core institution, and when adultery comes into place, guess what happens? It's a subversion and and discrediting of what God has established. It's a covenant violation. Think about, like, Edward, what's his name? Um, Snowden, right? He's an enemy of the state. He is viewed as a subversive. Why? Because he blew a whistle, right? And, and, And you don't dare spill government secrets. Well, if that's true, and people will put, you know, somebody, the government will put somebody like that to death, well, how, how much more serious should we consider God's family? And we, we look at our culture, the family is being destroyed around us, not just through things like sodomite, so-called marriage, or, um, or even abortion. The family, by and large, is being ripped to seams. God cares about the family. That's why adultery suffered a very stiff sentence the forfeiting of your life. So, so all of this, because there was no man, because they set this thing up, it was a publicity stunt, all of it was basically a political power play that was meant to trick Jesus, but Jesus won't entertain the stupidity. He treats it with triviality because it's a trivial thing. After all, the law cannot and will not be used to further sin. Okay, we talked about this this morning, actually, on the radio show. Like, we love God's law, and theonomy is a beautiful doctrine. We should all love God's law the way David loves God's law in in Psalm 119 and other places. But the last thing I want is Donald Trump handling God's law. (laughs) So we want righteous magistrates. We want righteousness in the streets. But we need Christians to do it, not um, bombastic presidents, (laughs) to say the least. So the law of God is not to be used to further sin. And that's what they were doing. This was a mistrial. This was injustice in every sense of the word. So Jesus, who told us to judge righteously in the previous chapter, he judges the case righteously, and he basically tosses it out of the courtroom. He won't even hear it. He won't even look at him in the eye and discuss it with him. They bring the woman. He sees what's going on. He stoops down and draws in the dirt. He doesn't care. It's injustice. Now, lawless people cannot enforce the law because they don't know it. They don't know it. So they don't know what it says, and thus they can't enforce it, which is basically what Nicodemus had warned about just a few verses prior to this incident. They, listen, they did not want justice here. They did not want to honor God. They did not want justice. They wanted to trick Jesus. Their bloodlust took over justice. Okay, it's just, It's like America in a nutshell. (laughs) Oh, there's oil in your country. We'll come take it by force. This whole, they don't care about justice. We don't care about that. We care about pragmatism. We care about what's, what's in it for us, what's in it for me. That's what the religious leaders were doing. They, that's what power religionists do. They want, they want mob rule. They, they don't want justice. They want mob rule. They want autonomous power so that they can be oppressive and they can bind other people's consciences. Pastors do that. 
But Jesus refuses to play the game. He won't even play this into their hands. He knows the law, and he uses the law in a lawful manner to dismiss the kangaroo court. Notice that Jesus upholds God's law. He's not discrediting it. He's upholding justice. They lacked righteous judgment, and this situation revealed just how badly it was lacking. Now, regarding the, the writing on the dirt, now there are many, many theories, there are many, many speculations, and the only thing we know is that we don't really know <laughs> what he wrote, okay? But since we're here and we're talking about it, I'm going to indulge your curiosities for a moment and tell you what I think. This is speculation. This should not be viewed as the final word, but I think I'm right. <clears throat> I could be wrong, I'm just saying. I don't think so, but it could be. So I'm going to read to you Jeremiah 7, 17, 13, but I'm going to read it in the King James because I think the King James does a better job. Um, here's what Jeremiah 17, 13 says. So listen carefully, see if you can hear it. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Okay, I'll read it again. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus, I'm convinced he had this in mind, especially because of the part about the foundation the fountain of living waters. He's already told us about the living waters. He's going to tell us again in the next part of chapter 8. I think it fits. Am I convinced you yet? I don't know. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that's where it fits. So he's going to talk about the foundations of living waters, the fountain of living waters. So what Jeremiah, though, is getting at is this. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, it shall be written in the dust of the ground. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Now, what happens if you write in the ground and a wind comes? It's gone, right? See, see the, the religious leaders, they had forsaken God, they had forsaken his law, and they were now forsaking his Christ. And Proverbs 10:18 comes to mind, where it says, He who conceals hatred has lying lips. The one who has hatred in his, in his heart, who conceals it, has lying lips. Inevitably, that hatred you have, that bitterness you have in you, it will propel you to lying or being double-minded or saying one thing, meaning another, or what have you. So they had forsaken everything good, everything pure, and everything holy, all in the name of good and pure and holy. That's the irony here. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, all right, the word, this word finger is used a few times, but the other, the significant passage that is, it's just interesting. I don't know why this is the case. But the other significant passage of where it's used is in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus explains that the kingdom has come because he's casting out demons by the finger of God. Matthew, Matthew 10 says that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. Luke says finger of God, which I take to be the same thing, by the way. Why, why the finger? Why? Is there an emphasis on the finger of him using his finger to write on the ground? Here's the answer, I think. 
Because like the finger of God who wrote stone, on the stone tablets of Moses in the giving of the law, so Jesus takes the exact same authority to write the names of people either in the book of life or the dust of the ground. Okay, so follow the train of thought. Man comes from dust, so Christ is writing their names in the dust, signifying that they are not only to return to the dust, but the law of God actually condemns them and it condemns them to death for their failure to believe on him. Check this out. In God's law, if you falsely accuse someone and that person was put to death and it's found out that you committed perjury, what happens to you? You are put to death. The same fate is given to you because you essentially framed someone. Jesus is condemning them to death. He's condemning them to death. And their death would come in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. So man comes from the dust, your name's written in the dust, dust shall you shall return. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Again, speculation, but I think I'm right. <laughs> so sort of, let's do this in other words. For Jesus, for, for those in Christ, Jesus writes on your heart with the Spirit of God. Okay, the finger of God. He writes on your heart. He writes the law on your heart. For those who are outside of Christ, Jesus writes you in the dust. And thus your life fades, your life fades like dirt blowing around in the wind. And I think that's why this moment is so significant. Now, here's what I think. I think that when Jesus stooped down to write in the dust, I think that he wrote all of their names that were standing there in the dust and they no doubt would have seen him writing their names in the dust and they realized they were tricked. He silenced them with basically an act of prophetic denunciation. See, the chapter begins with the leaders wanting to stone the woman and the chapter ends, if you look in your Bible, in the very last verse, the chapter ends with the religious leaders now wanting to stone Jesus. They trapped him. He got out of the trap. In fact, condemned them. It was their problem, not his. See, now, Matt read De Deuteronomy 17, which is just one passage among many. But according to God's law, according to biblical law, Deuteronomy spells this out. But testimony could only be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's normal jurisprudence in God. That's lawful jurisprudence in God's world. If there are no witnesses, there is no court case. And, and somebody may get away with a crime with no witnesses, but before God's eyes, they will be condemned for it unless they repent. So one witness was not enough. In that passage, we also learn that the witnesses are the ones, in Deuteronomy 17, the witnesses are the ones who are required to cast the first stone. Now, why would a witness be told to cast the first stone in God's law? Well, it's a sober reminder that, A, life is precious. It's not to be trifled with. God's law is perfect and holy, and that false testimony will not be allowed. Okay? So if, if you witnessed a crime, your civic responsibility is to not only give testimony to it, but you are to have a hand in the execution. And the reason for that is so that you're not lying. It rules out, for the most part, you still have you know, pathological liars, but if that's discovered, then they face the same, same testimony. 
But inevitably, you run into a situation where if you are required to cast the first stone, which probably would have been like a pit where you would push a boulder off, your job is to give testimony all the way through. You can't just conveniently frame someone. You have to be there to see it through. And if it was discovered again that the witnesses were false, they were going to suffer the same fate. So essentially what I'm arguing, and I think what the text argues, is that Jesus does in fact uphold biblical law. He does uphold it. By asking for those without sin to come forth, Jesus was asking for witnesses in accordance to the law of God who not only saw the sin transpire, but who were witnesses not complicit in the act. Okay, that's how we should understand this. We we like to coffee mug everything. (laughs) He is without sin, cast the first stone, which we take to mean, don't judge me, bruh. (laughs) Don't judge me. You're without sin, you know, you can cast the first stone. Nobody's perfect after all. That's the coffee mug. That's not what he's saying. When Jesus asks for witnesses, he's asking for people who saw the sin transpire, And he wants witnesses who are not complicit in the act. God's law does not require every man to be perfect in order to adjudicate a crime. It's impossible. Man is not perfect. He's pointing at the religious leaders because they are complicit. They are hiding things. Problem, maybe we're in a situation where the woman who was caught in adultery was caught in adultery with one of the religious leaders. And they're all protecting them because it's a good old boy club. So again, the man was most likely there, and Jesus says, he who is without sin, that should be basically understood to mean the witnesses whose testimony is not corrupted by perjurous intentions and is not involved in this conspiratorial setup, which it obviously is, you step forward, let's get going with it, you cast the first stone. So you, in other words, you need to understand the absolute wisdom in inv- that's involved in turning this whole thing upside down. Jesus is a master at wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate, like Solomon, right? He, he is wisdom incarnate. So Jesus basically was able to do a few things. One, he affirms the law of Moses, and he affirms the death penalty that's attached to it. He doesn't dismiss it. He's affirming it. Two, he's also able to affirm that Rome held the authority at that point. He's not going to take matters into his own hands. Three, he's dismissing the case because they didn't have two or three witnesses. And four, he proves that not only was this a severe case of injustice, he flips it around and he puts them in between a rock and a hard place, pun intended. Now they can do two things. One, they can pick up a rock and they can stone her in response and follow Jesus' orders and then prove to everyone that they don't care about justice. So then they're discredited. They try to discredit Jesus. He discredits them. Two, they can walk away ashamed for being called out in such a manner. They chose the latter. See, the religious leaders wanted to shame this woman and use her as an object of their bloodlust. They don't care about justice. And yet Jesus brings her not simply to justice, he brings her to the just one. She had sinned. She was being being set up. And Jesus forgives her and tells her to sin no more. Listen, her sin is inexcusable. And she could still face justice there on earth. But when she comes to the just one, she can be forgiven. 
you know, in God's law, you could, you could come to Christ, but you still face the penalty for your crime. Thank God you, you're in heaven. You've repented. That's great. But the scribes and the Pharisees were basically making a mockery of biblical law. And we see the same thing today in the church. We see the same thing today in the world. We see Christians who mock God's standards by jokingly saying things about stoning naughty children and executing all the gays. They make silly, nonsensical statements because they don't, they don't understand. And this type of irresponsible flippancy, God will, will not and does not find funny. It's offensive to the Lord of glory because this flippancy treats God with contempt. See, here's what, here's what I'm... Let's get personal for a minute. Here's where I think this, how we apply this passage. What does it mean to you tomorrow morning when you have breakfast to make with children who are all hangry? Here's what I think. Long before, long before we need biblical law in society is the need for biblical wisdom. Jesus exemplifies tremendous wisdom here. The only way we're going to get a lawful use of the law is one, by large-scale regeneration, which means we have to preach the gospel. We need more Christians on this planet, and more Christians we will get. But two, by using it individually in the family and in the church. So long before there's theonomy in the streets, there must be theonomy in the church and in the family. Children, you all need to love God's law. You need to long for it. You need to be deeply concerned with what is right. And what is right and good and true is what you should, you should deal with. We had an adjudication process this afternoon at our house. A certain transgression took place. And it was a rough one, but we dealt with it. And one of the ways that we dealt with it, and in my mind, it's funny how like, you prepare for something and like, God's like, here, you're going to deal with this. One of the ways we dealt with it is realizing, A, like we're called to confess our sins to God because we can be forgiven and healed, right? And then we confess our sins to each other. But for some reason, we think the hard part is confessing it to the other person. The hard part should be approaching God. I mean, it shouldn't be, but it should be harder than that. Because we are going to the just and holy God who's going to sort this whole thing out and make all things right and good and pure and holy. But for us, we need to be able to take God's law. Long before it's in the streets, it needs to be in our homes. It needs to be taught to our children. They need to not just know the standard, they need to love it. They need to, to, to want the standard. They need to appreciate it and follow it. And just so we're clear, regeneration and God's law should not be seen as enemies. They work together because in regeneration, God's law is written on the heart by the Spirit. In other words, regeneration is basically theonomy applied. But, but what else should we be thinking before we close? Who are we in the story? It's always good when you read a narrative to think about that. Who are we in the story? Well, before we are Jesus, because we think highly of ourselves, <laughs> before we're Jesus judging righteously and upholding, you know, the law of God like good reformed theonomists, <laughs> and before we're the power-playing religious leaders, we're the woman caught in the act, right? We're the woman caught in the act. 
Our, our sin has now been exposed before a holy God. And sometimes we confess this and we are absolved by God's grace and we move forward in pursuit of sanctification having been forgiven much. But sometimes though, we're also the power playing religionists. Uh, sometimes we're the one that are, we're quick to injustice. Sometimes we're quick to injustice, you know, assuming something about a friend, gossiping about an enemy, which means that we have to deal with those things. We can't have these grandiose visions of God's law in society if we can't even get something so simple like that straight. So if we're ever going to judge righteously and imitate Jesus, we have to deal with those types of things. But we need to know that in Christ, any accusation against us cannot stick. Why? Because there's no condemnation in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. True accusations are forgiven. False accusations cannot stick. And the reason is because Jesus deals with us justly. Right? It, no one gets injustice with God. You either get mercy or justice. There's no injustice. So for families, we need justice in the home and we need to love it and promote it and, and, and expect it in all of our dealings, our marital dealings, our par parenting dealings and all that thing. But how does Jesus deal with us justly? Well, Jesus was shamed. Jesus was despised. Jesus was treated like garbage. And we too are sometimes treated the same by the world. He was trapped and we too sometimes will be entrapped by those who are at war with God and his Christ. And we too sometimes will suffer injustice. We too will sometimes be hated and sometimes be shamed. And we too sometimes will be despised by the world which glories in sin and death. But how do we navigate the injustice? Well, we need to remember that in Christ, none of it carries any weight anymore. In Christ, there's no condemnation. And therefore, we can trust this heavenly courtroom, the verdict. We can trust the righteous verdict of God. We can believe it. We can go to the cross, have our sins absolved. And God doesn't just turn a blind eye to crimes, but he does deal justly. Why? Because of Christ on the cross. And so we have to apply it. We have to believe it in our families and how we treat each other. And we need to deal with it in our churches. Dealing with conflict or however that works itself out, we need to deal with those things. We need lawful ju jurisprudence there, the type of lawful jurisprudence that rests in the finished work of Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glory in your Son this evening. The foundations of your throne are righteousness and justice, and, and Jesus is seated, up, seated upon both. We ask and pray that you would give us wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon who judged between the two mothers, the wisdom of Christ who judged between the accused and the accusers. We need biblical law and we acknowledge that we need biblical wisdom beforehand. So give us the desire to know your word, to ask for wisdom and learn how to apply both of those as individuals governed by your spirit, as a church, as families. All of this is in Christ's name I pray, amen.